Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Life Church Buffalo. How are you guys feeling today? Yeah? Awesome. If you're new here, if this is your first time, my name is Pete. I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor, and we're just honored to have you joining us on this holiday weekend. If you're listening to this message on a podcast or watching on the other side of a computer screen on YouTube, thanks for taking the time to do so, and we look forward to having you here in person. Hope you guys enjoyed your holiday. You know, for me, it was a rare occasion where I got more than one day off this week. Normally, Friday is my day off, and I had some extended time to be with my family and celebrate the freedom that we have in Christ, and so thankful that we live in a uh, country where we are free to pursue His purposes for our lives. Amen? hope that you guys had a great time. And you know, I discovered something this weekend is I got to have some extra time with my family. You know, on Friday after we watched the, the, the fireworks in Orchard Park, you know, we had a very rare occasion where we had nothing to do. We had nowhere to be, nowhere to go. And so we just spent the day at home and I made the decision to, you know, get some yard work done. And I don't know if you remember what the weather was like on Friday, but it was like hotter than Hades on Friday. And I cannot remember the last time I sweat that much. And it was interesting as I observed the behavior of my children, you know, on a couple of days where we got to spend more time together than normal where, you know, my poor kids, you know, they, they recognize that anything that happens at home is like fair game for a sermon illustration. <laughs> but my older son, Samuel, you've heard me talk about him a little bit. He's our compliant one. He is very amenable and agreeable, loves to help people, loves to share his toys, loves to be a blessing to others. Whereas our younger son, Isaac, who has more of a creative and artistic personality, you know, um, blessing others is more of a conscious decision for him. It doesn't come as easily for him. But I noticed on Friday morning as we were gathered around the island in our kitchen having breakfast, you know, after spending the whole day together on Thursday, Kelly asked him to get something out of the cupboard for his brother. And he was like, sure, I'd love to do that for you. Is there anything else I can do for you? And Kelly and I looked at each other like, this is different. It's kind of nice. And the more I thought about it, you know, as the day progressed, I realized that it's a lot easier for, you know, it's one thing if you have a natural gift of helping others, it just kind of flows out of you. It's another thing for people who don't have that gift to do it out of duty. But when you feel loved, it's easier for you to love others. After having had quality time with his family, spending time with his father, it was a more natural response for Isaac to love and serve others. And as we're continuing this series today that we began last week called Love and Serve, I wonder how much of that is true for us as well, where some of us may not have the gift of helps or service, but when we sit back and we take time to sit at the feet of Jesus and reflect on his great love for us, how much more of a natural response it will be to give our lives in service to those that Jesus came to lay down his life for. You know, we all want to see the broken mended. We want to see healing come. We want to see wrongs made right. And we learned last week as I laid the foundation that that's not going to happen just because we want it to. It's not going to happen because we hope it will. It's going to happen when we actually stop just going to church. You know, how many of you know that God's highest calling for us as followers of Jesus isn't just to go to church on Sundays? Church isn't a building. It's not a destination you go to. The church is a people. We are the church. And God's highest calling for us 
is to be conformed to his image and to live like him. And to live like him means that we need to love and serve other people the same way that Jesus did. And if we want to flourish and thrive as a people, then we need to be planted in the house of God. And that was what we talked about last week. If you missed last week, I would strongly encourage you to listen to that message on the podcast or watch it on YouTube. It's a very foundational message for us to understand as we move forward in this series because we talked about how your life is like a seed and a seed will only grow when it's planted. And we learned that going to church is a whole lot different than being planted in the house of God. And God's word promises that those who are planted will flourish. And there's a couple things that happens when we plant ourselves in the house of God. The first thing is that our roots grow deep. We get strength and support from the roots of other people who are planted in the house beside us. And we're able to weather the storms. We're able to withstand the fiery trials that come and the spiritual droughts that we go through because our roots go deep and they have access to a source of strength and water below the surface that regardless of what's happening outside of us, there's a strength within us. The other thing that happens when we're planted is that our roots begin to produce fruit. The fruit of the spirit becomes more and more evident in our lives and that fruit's not just for us. Other people get the benefit and the blessing of, of tasting the fruit that comes out of our lives. The kindness, the joy, the peace is contagious. The faithfulness that builds relationships. And so that was last week. And as we continue today, this love and serve series, I love it so much. It's because it's kind of at the heart of what we believe as a church and what we do as a church, but not only is it kind of a core value, it's one of the three core values we have as a church, but it's more than that. I believe that this message, this series, this idea is at the core of Christianity. You know, at, at the core of what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ is this idea that God became one of us and dwelt among us. It's known as the incarnation in theological terms, that God became one of us and dwelt among us. And John, who wrote the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, was one of Jesus' 12 disciples and followers would sit down near the end of his life. Most scholars put the writing of the Gospel of John. He also wrote a few letters near the end of the New Testament. But he sat down to write John somewhere between 90 and 100 AD, some 60 years or so after the resurrection. He was one of Jesus' disciples who believed in and followed Jesus for three years, three, three and a half years while Jesus walked the earth, then disbelieved or didn't know what to believe after the crucifixion, but then believed again after Jesus resurrected and appeared to all of them. And so as an old man, John sits down to write his gospel and he begins his gospel with this. In John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's John's way of saying that God took on human form and became one of us. He hung out with us. He lived among us. Some 60 years or so after the fact, he is still absolutely convinced Despite everything he's seen and experienced, despite the fact that he has outlived all of the other apostles, all of the other apostles have been murdered or martyred for their faith in trying to make this message of Jesus known and spread across the region. Despite everything that's happened, he is still absolutely convinced that this Jesus, this friend of his, was more than just a friend. He was more than just a great rabbi, a great teacher, more than just a good man. That this Jesus was, in fact, sent from God 
and was somehow mysteriously the unique son of God. But why would God choose to send his son and why would his son want to spend any time with us? Why would he become one of us? Well, Jesus actually answered that question for us. Later on in John's gospel, John records the prayer that Jesus prayed at the Last Supper, the night before he would go to the cross. He prays to his father, and John records in John 17, verse 4, as Jesus says this to his father, he says, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, typically, when we think about the work that Jesus came to do, the reason Jesus came to earth, we think about him dying on the cross to pay for the sin of all mankind, which is certainly a major part of why he came. But before he went to the cross, he says, I've glorified you, Father, by completing the work you sent me to do. He had already completed the work before he went to the cross. And then he continues to pray, I have revealed you, Father, to the ones you gave me from this earth. He's saying, I came to show the world who you are, to reveal you to them. I glorified you and completed the work that you gave me to do. I've done everything I can to make you so real, so personal, so present. In a word, in a nutshell, Jesus came to take the guesswork out of God. See, Jesus didn't claim to have the best explanation of God. He came to be the best explanation of God to show people who God was, what he was like. In fact, one of his followers near the end of his ministry said, Jesus, just show us the Father and we'll believe. You keep talking about the Father, show him to us. And Jesus just smiled and said, Philip, don't you get it? Like, why do you think I'm here? Like, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's why I came to show him to you. But in demonstrating what God was like, Jesus did something that completely blew the minds of first century people. In demonstrating what God was like, he also demonstrated whom God liked. And that is what was so radical and mind-blowing for first century people. That in demonstrating what God was like, Jesus also showed people whom God liked. And if you're not a Christian or you used to be a Christian and the whole church thing kind of turned you off or you got hurt or burned or, you know, you got disillusioned by hypocrites or whatever the case is, whatever your story is, I would just love for you to consider what I present today and let this kind of sit on your mind and, and ponder it for a little bit. Because this is something I think we often miss, that when you think of notions like God is love, such a common statement that is made, or God loves everybody. You might be here and not even be a Christian. You might be an agnostic or a general theist where, you know, I'm not sure about this whole Jesus thing, but if there is a God, I certainly believe that he is a loving God, that he loves everybody, or the notion that everybody matters to God. Maybe you've seen a bumper sticker with that on it. What we need to understand is that these notions are all uniquely Christian ideas that Jesus actually introduced these ideas to the world because the gods in the other religions at the time were nothing like this. The Greek and Roman gods didn't love people. They toyed with people. 
The Greek and Roman gods didn't love people. They didn't care for people and they didn't require people to care. So when Jesus comes on the scene with these radical teachings, it was a brand new idea. And to compound the confusion for first century people and show you the drastic contrast that Jesus was to his culture, we need to understand a little bit about slave culture. So you got to understand, see, in the Roman Empire and the Roman culture that was present at the time, there were more slaves than there were Roman citizens. Slavery in that day and age was an assumption. It wasn't a social issue. All around the world, slavery was an assumption. And slavery devalued people because everyone was just one string of bad luck away from becoming a slave. Like this wasn't going anywhere all around the world. Economies were driven by slavery. And so if a nation came and invaded your tribe, you could become a slave. If your husband died, ladies, like you could become a slave. If you got injured or got sick and couldn't work anymore, you could become a slave. If you couldn't pay your debts, you could become a slave. Everyone in early centuries was just one event away from becoming someone else's property. Nobody had intrinsic value. Everyone was seen through an economic lens. They didn't have intrinsic value. And then Jesus showed up. And even in a Jewish culture where the temple system had devolved to the point where its religious leaders adhered to their own version of like a karma, a caste system, where they used their laws to keep sinners and women and Samaritans and sick people and lepers all in their place. Always reminding people that God favored the powerful and the wealthy, that God primarily favored wealthy, healthy men. And that if you were sick, it was a sign that God disfavored you or that your parents had somehow committed some sin, that you were the unfortunate recipient of God's judgment. And in a slave culture like that, the whole idea of compassion was completely unnecessary because everyone was just getting what they got, what they deserved. Like sick people got what they deserved. Poor people got what they deserved. And the rich people got what they deserved. Until along came the rabbi from Galilee. And everywhere he went, he elevated the dignity of people. He taught that compassion was a strength, not a weakness. He taught that being meek was not the same as being weak. That to do for someone else what they could never repay you for or do for you was actually a virtue. That people had intrinsic value just because they were human, human beings that were made and fashioned in the image of God. He elevated the dignity of women which I'm so excited about, guys, for our hero series coming up in a couple weeks. 
For those of you that, are, that have been around for a while, you know that every summer we like to do you know, a, a, a hero series, like a Marvel comic book theme type superhero series. Last year it was Joseph. The year before that it was Joshua. Well, this year we've decided to take a few women out of the Bible and show you how God has used women throughout the centuries to advance his causes and his kingdom in the earth today. It's gonna be awesome. You're gonna hear some from some powerful female communicators during that series as well. But Jesus elevated the status and the dignity of women in a culture that didn't compute with the Jews, with the Greeks, or the Romans. He elevated the dignity of sick people and poor people. He would stun his audiences over and over again with his teachings. Teachings like the Good Samaritan, where Jesus would place a Samaritan as the hero of a story above a priest or a Levite, which was unheard of. And Jesus did something in this teaching that the world is still trying to recover from. He redefined the term neighbor. In their culture, in their context, much like ours today, a neighbor is someone who maybe lives next to you or looks like you or talks like you or behaves like you and believes like you. But Jesus redefined neighbor as being anyone who has a need. Teachings like the trilogy of lost things that we can find in Luke chapter 15, where he tells three short stories, three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, all to illustrate how God views lost people, that sinners aren't people that God chases down to punish. Sinners are people that God chases down to rescue, that God doesn't go after sinners to pay them back. He goes after sinners to win them back. Teachings like the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus would tell us that not only are we not to hate our enemies, but we're to love them and pray for them and do good to them. Like this introduced the idea of doing good to others who would never ever do good to you. This was radical. This was completely revolutionary. And then the teaching of the widow's might, where he's sitting at the gate of the temple with his disciples and watching as people walk in. It was customary for them to drop their offerings in this basket that was there that they used to kind of keep the temple up. And all of these wealthy people would walk in and drop their large sums of money and you know, you'd hear it hit the bottom of the barrel and it was a sign that they were wealthy, that God had favored them. And then this poor, bent over widow walks in and drops two copper coins in the basket. You can't even hear it hit the bottom. And Jesus says to his disciples, you see that woman right there? That woman is rich in the kingdom of God. She's given more than all the other ones. His teachings completely blew people's minds because they were so contrary to what they had been exposed to in their culture. But as radical and as revolutionary as his teachings were, they were nothing compared to what he did. If you want to know what someone means by what they say, watch what they do. I'll say that again for you. If you want to know what someone means by what they say, watch what they do. And the way Jesus interacted with people was so unorthodox and so different from the religious leaders of his day, where in his culture, in, in Judaism, it was like clean hands, holy heart. Like the cleanliness was associated with godliness to the point where religious people would distance themselves from anything that was unclean or dirty. 
And Jesus kind of flipped the script and almost in a sense said, dirty hands, holy heart. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, what about that verse that says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. I'm not talking about people who get their hands dirty with the corruption of this world. I'm talking about Jesus modeling a way of life that would touch the untouchable, that would get his hands dirty serving people and washing dirty feet. Jesus' life shows us that like dirty hands, holy heart. So you want to know what people mean by what they say. Watch what they do. What does Jesus' interactions look like with the Samaritan woman? The good Samaritan was a parable, a made-up story, but his interaction with the Samaritan woman was a real experience where he... See, you got to understand something about Jews and Samaritans at this time. This was a 700-year hate fest. Samaria was on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and Jews would go out of their way to avoid having to go through Samaria. Tons of racial prejudice. Jews saw Samaritans as half-breeds. Like, it was ugly. They wouldn't talk to each other. And yet Jesus goes out of his way to go through Samaria, stops at a well where he talks to a Samaritan woman and asks her to drop her Samaritan bucket into her Samaritan well and draw water that he can drink from his Jewish lips. This was unheard of. His interactions with sick people were different. Like I said earlier, religious leaders in Jesus' day would never touch sick people because it would have made them ceremonially unclean. And they could have caught whatever the sick person had. But Jesus touched their eyes. He embraced them. He touched their skin. Like he, he touched a leper and healed him. Like leprosy in Jesus' day was an uncurable disease that was highly contagious Lepers were the outcasts of society. They were forced to live on the outskirts of town. And anytime they had to come into town, they were forced to come in by saying, unclean, unclean, to announce their arrival so that people could get out of their way so they wouldn't be touched and made unclean. And not only did Jesus not get dirty, not get sick when he touched them, he made the sick well. Teachings, his interactions, like with tax collectors, one of his Followers, one of the 12 apostles, Matthew was a tax collector sitting in his tax collector's booth when Jesus said, hey, Matthew, come follow me. And the other guys were like, no, 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 no. My mama told me not to hang out with those people. Like you gotta understand in Jesus' day and age, there were like categories of people. There were like prostitutes, sinners, and tax collectors. They were the bottom of the barrel seen by their people as traitors. Jews who worked for Rome to collect taxes from the Jews, always skimming off the top to pad their nice, comfy, cozy existence. Totally seen as traitors. And Jesus asks one of them while he's collecting taxes to come follow him. And then there's the interaction with Zacchaeus, another tax collector. If you grew up in church, you know the story. Like a wee little man was he. He went up into a sycamore tree to see what he could see. Something in Zacchaeus, this tax collector, had heard enough about Jesus that his curiosity was piqued. Because there were crowds everywhere Jesus went, being a short guy, he climbed up into a tree to see if he can get a look at Jesus. And nothing Jesus ever did was on accident. So he purposely walks by this sycamore tree and he looks up at Zacchaeus and says, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm gonna have dinner at your place tonight. Peter's like, great, here we go again. There goes our reputation. No wonder the Pharisees and Sadducees hate us. We're always hanging out with the wrong people. 
And Jesus is like, you guys don't get it. Something new has come. I came to show you not only what God is like, but whom God likes and how he views and treats people. Not through an economic lens, but through the lens of someone who's been made and crafted and fashioned in his image. His interactions then with a centurion who would come up to Jesus. Now, you guys got to get this. Like, Rome is the occupying force. They're the the proof, the reason that, that reminds them every day that they are under God's punishment and judgment. And a Roman soldier, a Roman centurion comes up to Jesus and asks him for a favor. And I wonder if Peter or John steps back and says, surely he is not going to do a Roman a favor. And Jesus heals the centurion's servant. Guys, at least 12 different times throughout his life, Jesus would lay hands on people to heal them. He was a hands-on God. He was willing to get his hands dirty in an attempt to show us how God viewed people, even to touch the untouchable or the unclean. Jesus went out of his way to assign value to the people that society had deemed as having no value at all. And when Jesus finally left this planet, his closest disciples had finally caught it. They they got it. They understood what it meant, that it wasn't about adhering to a list of rules and regulations, that God was after something that we can't say we love God if we don't place value on the things that he places value on. We can't say we love God if we don't love people, the very people that he came to love. They had caught it. They understood it so much so where the first problem that we see take place in the New Testament church, you can read about it in Acts chapter 6, is these guys had, had so embodied and embraced this identity of being servant leaders that they were involved in the distribution of food to the widows that it actually hindered their ability to preach and teach the word. So they delegated some, some people to oversee that part. But they had so embraced this idea that if I'm going to follow Jesus, I need to love and serve others just like he did. And that became the hallmark of the first century church. No strings attached, compassion and generosity was the hallmark of the first century church. And this is one of the most amazing untold stories in history, that the early church actually believed they had eternal life because that's what Jesus told them. Whoever believes in me shall never die, but have eternal life. And because they believed they had eternal life, they didn't fear death. And so when plagues would come, as we've read about in history class, and it would claim thousands of lives and people would flee for other areas in the hopes that they would escape these plagues, history tells us it was the Christians that stuck behind to care for the poor, And the sick, many times perishing right along with friends and neighbors and strangers. In the first century, it was not uncommon or illegal for that matter for someone who had a baby that they didn't want or felt they they couldn't take care of to just abandon their baby. There were actually, it was called exposing your baby. 
It was a common practice, and there were designated areas on the outskirts of a forest or next to a riverbank where people could go and literally just expose their child to the elements because they believed that they were exposing it to its fate. That if fate would have it that this child be eaten by a wild animal, so be it. That's, That's the child's fate. If fate would have it that they roll into the riverbank or freeze to death or be kidnapped by someone who had ill intent, we're exposing it to its fate. It was common practice. But it was Christians, many of whom didn't have much themselves, would take these babies in, feed them and raise them as their own. Why? All because of the teachings of Jesus that elevated the dignity of every person made in his image. Interestingly enough, some 250 or so years later, Constantine becomes the emperor of Rome. And after centuries of Christians being persecuted, all of a sudden Christianity is no longer a persecuted religion. Several years later, he officially makes Christianity the religion of the empire. And one of the first laws that he passes, you know what it is? He makes the exposure of infants a capital offense. Why? Because of the teachings of Jesus. It would be Christians over the centuries who would establish hospitals and universities. And the teachings of Jesus would continue to influence and shape culture over the centuries, even to today, where whether we realize this or not, the teachings of Jesus have helped shape the conscience of our nation. Like the reason you think you should be fair is not because you're a Christian. The reason you think you should be fair isn't because, you know, you're some intrinsically good moral person. The reason you think you should be fair and treat people justly is because we live in a country that was founded on teachings from Jesus that elevated the dignity of people and said that people were worthy of respect. That we have lawmakers in this country, Republicans and Democrats alike, and I'm not going to get political here, We might, you know, they might disagree and debate and debate and debate over what laws to pass that are best for people. They might not agree on what laws are best, but at the end of the day, I don't think anybody would argue that what's best for people is best for people. That what's best for women is best for women. That what's best for children is what's best. That's what's best for the poor and for the sick is what's best. Our culture, for the most part, and I understand that we're moving farther and farther away from this as we distanced ourselves from our Christian roots and our Christian heritage. But for the most part, our culture understands the dignity of the individual. And that's not normal. History has shown us that that's not human nature. That is a shadow, that's a remnant of how the teachings of Jesus have helped shape the conscience of our nation. And today, the church's role, our role, because we learned last week, the ecclesia, when Jesus said, I will build my church, that's a gathering of believers who gather together every week to be strengthened and encouraged and then sent out on mission. The church's role is to remind the world through our personal behavior and through our corporate behavior that Jesus loved and served people And we're going to do the same. That Jesus elevated the dignity of people. That regardless of their color, red, yellow, black, and white, they are all precious in his sight. That's our role in our culture today. 
And so while we may be criticized for what we believe, we should be famous for our compassion and our generosity. Like the world may not agree with everything we believe and teach. They may criticize us for it. They may make fun of us for it. But they should look in at the way we treat people and say, now that is special. That's pretty spectacular. The way they love and serve people who are different than them, who don't believe what they believe. Because that's the pattern that Jesus left for us. And that's why we're doing this series. To teach on why loving and serving others should be one of our highest priorities for anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, it's one of the reasons I hope you'll consider becoming a Christian. Not only because Jesus paid for everything you've ever done wrong and has given you the promise of eternal life with him someday, but because Jesus, everywhere he went, elevated the dignity of everyone around him and he taught his followers to do the same. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like a really great way to live. And that's why love and serve is one of our core values as a church. Because having experienced his love, having been changed and transformed by his love, we wanna turn around and show and share that love with the people around us in real and practical ways. And that's where the serve part comes in. Because that's how people are gonna see. And we wanna be intentional about it. That's why we added that phrase. Because for so many of us, our serving comes out of convenience when we feel like it, when we've got time for it. But it's not an option if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Like, regardless of what people believe, we're called to serve them because everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or not. Jesus didn't place stipulations on who we should love and serve. Everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or not. And since Jesus said it's our love for one another, the way we treat people that will let the world know we're his followers, that will let the world know what it means and what it looks like to follow Jesus, guys, there's a lot riding on our ability to do this. And so let's be intentional about it. So how are we gonna put this into practice in our lives? I wanna give you one personal application and then a couple of corporate opportunities where as a church we can do this together. And the first is with this card right here. Some of you have been around a while, might know what this card is, but we've got these available for you at the back. And what this says on it, it's just a business card size thing that says, hope this makes your day better. And we want you to keep these with you in an attempt to help you be more intentional about looking for opportunities to show the love of Jesus to people in simple ways. So when you're in the drive-through line at Tim Hortons or McDonald's, pay for the person's order behind you and give this to the cashier and say, hey, would you give this to the person behind me? When you're in a restaurant and your server's frazzled, you wanna just bless them and leave a really big tip. Leave this card in there. It says, hope this makes your day better. Or maybe you'd see another family in the restaurant, kids going crazy, the mom looks frazzled. You tell your server, hey, I'd like to pick up their bill. And would you just give this to them? Hope this makes your day better. Maybe when you're in the grocery store and you would be moved to pay for the groceries of the person in front of you in line, And if they ask you why, you could just say, because God loves you and so do I. I hope this makes your day better. Guys, it doesn't have to be complicated. We just look for simple ways to love and serve others. We used to call these random act of kindness cards. But I started to get a little bit convicted about it as I looked at this and, you know, our core value is love and serve with intentionality. 
because the Christian life is not a series of random acts of kindness. It's a pattern of intentional acts of Christ-likeness. And so I want you to be intentional. I want you this week to think of one person, just one time this week, go out of your way to bless somebody. Maybe a neighbor, you mow their lawn. Maybe it's a friend, coworker in the office who's moving or something, I don't know. Just find one person where you can bless. You can do this personally. Maybe you would volunteer at the Buffalo City Mission. And speaking of the City Mission, there's an ad in your bulletin today that lets you know about something that we're gonna be partnering with them in the next couple of weeks on. You know, every so often they let churches in the area know about different needs that they have. And they've had, you know, a surge of homeless people coming in. And every time they, you know, give residence to a homeless person, they always give them a set of clothes to change into, some personal care items. And so the City Mission is in desperate need right now of men's large and extra large shorts and t-shirts athletic shorts and matching t-shirts and so for the next two weeks in the back of the auditorium we're going to have a bin or a receptacle if you'd like to join us in blessing the city mission by loving and serving those who are less fortunate in our community then you can buy them at walmart buy them on amazon drop them off here and we'll take them to the city mission or if you'd rather you can actually donate as well i had pastor lauren create a separate account in push pay for those of you that use push pay where you can give to the Buffalo City Mission. And at the end of the two weeks, we're gonna pool our collective resources and leverage our buying power. And we can buy in bulk. The more that give, we can actually get more for our money. And so that's an opportunity for you to put this into practice. And last but not least, you've been hearing us for the last couple of weeks talk about eight days of hope. I love Steve Tiber's vision. It's a national organization for disaster relief, but they're doing something new this year with having established a base here in Buffalo. They're doing Eight Days of Hope Buffalo, July 19th to the 26th. Guys, this event is huge. They already have almost 1,000 volunteers from 30 different states participating in this. Churches from 42 different churches from Western New York are partnering with Eight Days of Hope to love and serve on 100 different families in the university district that need different things done to their home, whether it be roofing, painting, siding, landscaping, electrical work, plumbing work. There's something for everyone. There are family-friendly events if you want to take your kids to this. But for these eight days, we're just going to be the church of Jesus Christ, regardless of what people believe, whether, they, whether God matters to them or not, they matter to God. And we're going to show them that God loves them. And so I would love for you to be a part of this, but the deadline to sign up for this, if you wanna be a part of it, is next Sunday because they've gotta order food, they've gotta order T-shirts. And so if you wanna be a part of this, you've got a week left to sign up and you can go to eightdaysofhope.com to do that. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount that I mentioned earlier, Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 14. He said, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Now, Jesus is using a military analogy here, actually, where those of you that are from the military would be familiar with this idea that you want to have a strategic position, you know, with a higher elevation that you can hold your position. And Jesus is saying, like, you guys are strategically placed in your community. You're strategically placed in your family. You're strategically placed in your school or in your workplace to be a light in the darkness, 
So instead of complaining about your job or your boss or complaining about your neighbors or complaining about, you know, the, the people at school, recognize that you are strategically placed by God. You are a city on a hill meant to give light into the darkness. He goes on to say, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Guys, let your good deeds shine. Let your love and your service to others be so evident to people that they would look in and say, you know what, I wanna be a part of whatever it is you're a part of. And eventually they'll give glory and praise to God as they call him their heavenly father as well. That's the goal of it all. So let's give the city something to see. Let's let our good deeds shine for Buffalo to see, amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we just come before you right now with humble hearts, Lord, acknowledging even for me, Jesus, that my service to others, the way I've treated others, the way I've assigned value to others has been when it's been convenient for me, when I've had time to. And so, Lord, would you forgive us maybe for our apathy, for our complacency, for being self-centered in our faith and making this Christian faith about us and the way you bless us. Lord, you want to bless us, but Lord, you bless us so that we can be a blessing to others. And so Jesus, I just wanna say thank you for showing us how it's done. Lord, that you didn't come to be served, but you came to serve. And so as your people, I pray, Lord, that we would get a glimpse and a revelation of your great love for us, God, that would compel us and motivate us to love the people that you came to give your life for. That those who are marginalized in our communities, those who are disenfranchised, those who've been hurt by the church, those who are down on their luck, those who are without a job, those who are without a home, they matter to you. They matter to you, God. May they matter to us as well. And so today, I just pray you'd speak to every heart and put the face of someone in their mind right now that they can intentionally demonstrate your love to them in a practical way. And may we be a people, God, who walk this out, who live this out, who demonstrate this every day, who don't just talk about it, but we do it. And as we do it, God, may we see a revolution of people, a wave of people who give praise to you when they see our good works. Lord, we pray for eight days of hope. We pray for the university district in just a couple of weeks. 100 families are gonna be the recipients of selfless acts of love. God, I pray that hearts would be open. I pray that eyes would be open to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, that you would stir spiritual hunger in them to seek you out. Lord, may they seek you and may they find you when they seek you with all their hearts. But Lord, we pray that you get all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise as we try to demonstrate your love to our city. God, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, church, I love you guys. This is gonna be an awesome summer as we love and serve on our community.